Awesome. Well, it's that time of year where you look at the 10-day forecast and you can see the forecast for the weather come Christmas Day. That's uh, exciting. We see that it's projected. If you look on your forecast, as I was looking uh, earlier, we can see that uh, Christmas Day is projected to be in the 50s. Yippee. I'm not much for a guy with warm weather on Christmas Day. Uh, so it looks like there won't be a white Christmas around this uh, neck of the woods. I'll be in Michigan come Christmas Day. It's not much better there either. It's projected to be in the mid-40s for Christmas Day. So I don't know about you, but for me, this warm weather has me feeling like Christmas is not right around the corner. And I need to snap out of that because it is right around the corner. It is in eight days. Is this warm weather messing with anyone else? Does anyone else feel like Christmas is not right around the corner? Yeah, a handful of us this morning. It's messing, messing with our minds there. And so we're going to try our best this morning to get in the Christmas spirit. And what better way to get in the Christmas spirit than to talk all about the reason for the season. And that is Jesus Christ as we celebrate Christ Mass, Christmas. And so Jesus is truly the reason for the season. It's a celebration of his birthday. So we're going to be talking all about Jesus this morning as we are in the midst of our sermon series entitled, Tis the Jesus Season. We're trying to make sure that Jesus remains the focal point of this Christmas season, which can be a tricky thing to do uh, in Western civilization in the 21st century when you have all of these other uh, festivities, celebrations, uh, traditions that some families have, uh, the idea, uh, some people with the idea Santa Claus and all these other things that our society throws so much at us during this time of Christmas that it can be so easy to miss the focal points of this Christmas season. We, we, we gloss right over the fact that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. And so throughout this series, we're, we're trying to ensure that Jesus remains the focal point of this Christmas season. And as we have gone through this uh, series, we saw in the first week that Jesus is the Christ. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we, we are meaning that Jesus is the anointed one, or he is the chosen one of God. In fact, God chose Jesus before the foundations of the world. Before God formed the heavens and the earth, God had this plan that revolved around his chosen one, uh, who who's later was revealed to be Jesus Christ. And so two weeks, and so throughout this year, we're taking a look at all of these different roles that God chose, specifically chose Jesus to fulfill. And so two weeks ago, we, we saw how God chose Jesus very specifically to fulfill the role of being his son. Jesus, often known is as the son of God, not, not God of all himself, but the son of God. And then last week, we, we saw that God chose Jesus to be his agent or his representative as well. 
As God made all of us in his image, in the image of God, he created male and female. And unfortunately, due to our limitations and our downfalls as mankind, we give a bit of a distorted view of who God is. We use the uh, image of when you're walking by a stream and you see your reflection in the water, depending on how fast the water is moving or how murky. It can be a bit of a distorted image. And that's kind of like us. We, we give a bit of a distorted image of who God is because of our limitations and because of the, the sin uh, that, that we may have in our life. Jesus, on the other hand, he gives a much clear picture, a much clear image of who God is. Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. And our message uh, uh, last week was a pretty thick message talking about, uh, if you guys may remember, talk about the law of agency, the, this uh, idea in which uh, the, the Jewish people use and when someone could represent another person. And I can assure you that uh, this morning's message is not going to be as thick as it was uh, last uh, Sunday. And some of you are sighing a sigh of relief right now. But today, uh, we are going to uh, see that God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world to, one, be the king, and two, to be the savior. And so uh, this morning, first, we're going to see Jesus fulfilling the role as king. Then we're going to focus on him fulfilling the role as savior. Then we're going to see how these two roles uh, work together. So starting off with, with Jesus being the king, God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world to be the king. This is a plan that God had uh, for his Christ that he also revealed to mankind. The Old Testament is scattered with different bits of information, different prophecies that God gives to his people regarding the future coming of his Christ. And throughout these many, many different uh, prophecies in the Old Testament of Christ Jesus, there are a number of them in the Old Testament that talk uh, about Jesus portraying this role as being a king or someone who has authority or rulership. And Zechariah 9.9 is forecast uh, the triumphal entry and the king, King Jesus come riding into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. Another commonly uh, well-known one is Isaiah 9, 6, talks about the government resting on the shoulders of Jesus. Daniel 7, 14, uh, another uh, well-known one talking about uh, the, the son of man's dominion and kingdom. Probably the most well-known prophecy, though, in the Old Testament of Jesus being king is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, to, to kind of help us set the scene this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is currently the king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. He took over as king after Saul died in battle. Saul actually was pursuing David. David was a fugitive as uh, Saul grew very jealous of David. And then Saul died. And then David was the next king of this unified nation of Israel. For Israel saw all these other nations, they all had their own kings. And for a long time, Israel had these like a little different local uh, military leaders, but they didn't have a, a unified king. Really, God was their king. They reject, they failed to see that God was their king, but, but they wanted a, a, a human king like all these other nations. So they had Saul and then David was, was the second king. And David had a really, really successful reign as king of Israel. David, uh, earlier on in his life, he, was a, he had a lot of military success that God granted him. 
Many people familiar with the story of David and Goliath and David able to slay this giant with a sling and a stone. That's just one story of the uh, success, the fame that David had. The, the ladies would sing, uh, Saul slayed his hundreds or thousands, and then David slayed his thousands or ten thousands. And so David had a lot of success. And then when he became king, he had this big fancy palace that he lived in. And at the same time, while David lived in this big fancy palace, the Israelites' central place of worship was a tent. It, it, it was a, a big tent. This big tent was also called the tabernacle. And the Israelites, for hundreds of years, they had this tabernacle, a fancy word uh, to basically, basically describe this tent that they had. Uh, for, if you remember, for 40 years, the Israelites, they wandered around in the wilderness, and they needed a place of worship that they could transport from point A to B to C to D to E to F to you name it. They, they're moving all over the place. And so they couldn't uh, erect a uh, permanent structure of worship, and so they had this tent that they could uh, tear down and bring with them from place to place. Well, now... David uh, and his people through Joshua, they conquered this land and they are permanent residents of this land of Israel. And yet the central place of worship is still a tent. It was a bit misfitting, misfitting for all these people having uh, firm structures for their houses and David living in a palace himself. And uh, I love David, one of my favorite heroes of our faith. And uh, he saw this uh, as an issue. He, he wanted to fix this. He wanted to ensure that there was a more permanent structure uh, as far as a central place of worship and a place that could also house the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy of holies, this most holy of holies it was this room uh, which represented the presence of God uh, to the Israelites. And so David wanted to fix this. And so David started talking to uh, this guy named Nathan, who was a prophet. And uh, Nathan said, yeah, do whatever your hearts desire. Go, go build this, uh, this more permanent structure for God. Well, apparently Nathan didn't really consult uh, with uh, God. And so later that night, uh, God told Nathan that, hey, this is not the plan that I have for David. Instead, I have a different plan. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see this different plan that God has in store for David and uh, his offspring. And so in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 12, this is, uh, we're, we're skipping down a bit into uh, these plans that, that Nathan is revealing to David, where God told Nathan, and then Nathan is now telling David. And so in verse 12 of chapter 7, Nathan is speaking on behalf of God. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in, the, in response to David's plan to build God a, a temple, a more permanent place uh, of worship, God in, informs David that, hey, when you lie down 
Lying down, that is a euphemism uh, regarding to death. Sleep is a very common euphemism for death throughout the scriptures, as that's what we're doing uh, when we uh, fall asleep in death. We are resting in the grave. We are, we are awaiting the return of Christ Jesus. And so when David lies down, when he falls asleep in death, God then is going to raise up his offspring after him. And this offspring of David, he's going to do a, a number of different things. And this is where it gets a, a little tricky here in 2 Samuel 7, because I believe it's referring to two different uh, offspring of David. I think one person that this uh, prophecy or this covenant uh, is regarding, uh, referring to is Solomon. Solomon, as we read, uh, if we were to continue reading through the story and looking through uh, 1 Kings as well, we'll see that Solomon, the son of David, he became king of Israel. And we see that Solomon builds the temple for God to, to also house the Ark of the Covenant. And so Solomon is the one there in verse 13. He says, he shall build the house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And so here, uh, God is informing David that, hey, your offspring, who was later revealed as Solomon, he is going to build for me a house. He's going to build for me a, a residence, a more permanent residence in, in which I can reside with my people. And this son Solomon also, went, when he sins, I will discipline him uh, with the uh, rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But then you'll notice in this description of David's offspring, there's some things that Solomon cannot possibly accomplish. There's some, some uh, details included in this uh, covenant and, and this uh, plan that God reveals to David that no mere man could accomplish. Instead, what we see here is that there is a special chosen one of God. In other words, there, there's a Christ. God has a chosen one who's going to fulfill portions of this covenant. We, we see that someone, the offspring of David, is going to come and he is going to establish a kingdom, a house, and a throne that lasts for how long? That lasts forever. And no, no person, no, no, no mortal man uh, like Solomon uh, in his current state at that time, uh, myself, you all, none of us, none of us could fulfill us in establishing a, a throne, a house, or a kingdom that lasts forever. There would need to be someone who would be raised uh, to everlasting life uh, initially. And, and that, of, of course, then is uh, Jesus Christ, where Jesus is establishing this house, this throne, and this kingdom forever. And so here, after uh, God reveals this plan uh, to David through Nathan, uh, the, the scribes write this down. And for hundreds of years, David uh, lived around 1,000 BC. And so for about 1,000 years be between the time of David and that of uh, the birth of Christ Jesus, these Israelites, they were waiting for the son of David, who is going to establish this house, this throne, and this kingdom forever. They're keeping a careful eye on who that son of David would be. And so lo and behold, as we continue the story, we transition into the New Testament. There comes a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who actually descends from the line of David. 
There's two uh, different genealogies of Jesus uh, recorded in the scriptures, one in Matthew chapter 1 and one in Luke chapter 3. And both of them contain David in these different genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, very clearly, the genealogy uh, of Jesus through his earthly father, Joseph. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph isn't the uh, birth father of Jesus. However, uh, the Jews, they, when, when they're recording uh, the, these different uh, lines of, of descent, they, they always uh, recorded it through their fathers. And, and so in a very legal sense, Jesus is the son of David, as through his earthly father descended from the line of David. We have that second genealogy uh, in Luke chapter 3, and if you study it carefully, you'll notice that eventually it veers off track and there's different names included. It doesn't explicitly state it, but many people believe that's uh, the genealogy of Jesus through his mother Mary. And so there, there's very good reason for us to believe that Jesus by birth, by blood, also was a son of David. So in a legal sense and a natural sense, Jesus is the son of David. And, and he's no ordinary son of David. He is a very special son of David. We see this uh, portrayed in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we, we see uh, the angel telling Mary what is about to happen as her life is about to uh, be radically changed, uh, and I believe radically changed for the better. That would have been a stark task, but the angel is presenting to her. But in Luke chapter 1, uh, found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the third book of the New Testament, uh, verse 30, it reads, And the angel, the angel Gabriel, said to her, Do not be afraid. Uh, I find that uh, a little comical. Oftentimes when we see the angels uh, appear before uh, men or women in the scriptures, uh, they always have to start off, do not be afraid. It makes me wonder what, what kind of scene, uh, what, what sort of entrance was the angel uh, have at that point where, where he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? Of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here is, is this wonderful lady, I'm sure. This wonderful lady, Mary, uh, who was a virgin, and not yet married, and all of a sudden, an angel goes and tells Mary that, hey, Mary, we got a special, special plan for you. Our, our Heavenly Father has a special plan for you. God, God of all has a special plan for you that you, Mary, are going to uh, get pregnant, and you are going to give birth to a baby boy, to a son. You're going to call his name Jesus, and this man, Jesus, this baby boy that you're about to give birth to, he is going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to be the son of God, as God's Holy Spirit is going to, to conceive and, and is going to bear fruit to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And Jesus is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
It's this angel Gabriel is letting Mary know, it's letting us know as the readers of this gospel, that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is that descendant of David foretold a thousand years ago at that time, and that Jesus would rule over, reign over the house of Jacob, the Israelites forever, the people of God forever. And so Jesus is the one who's going to establish this throne, this house, and this kingdom forever. Jesus is going to be made king. Jesus was the king, he is the king, and he is going to be the king as he reigns over the people of God, over the house of Jacob forever. You know, this message of Jesus being king is found all throughout Jesus' life as well. At Jesus' birth, the wise men, as we'll see uh, next week, were looking for, uh, quote, the king of the Jews. Uh, it's quite ironic because they, w- they reported this to King Herod, who, who was uh, the king of that region of the Jews. And, the, and these wise men, they're looking for the king of the Jews. At the triumphal entry the week before Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus humbly proclaimed to all the people present, that I am the king as he came humbly riding on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. And then at Jesus' death, Jesus was labeled on the cross, the king of the Jews. That is so poetic to me that, that at his birth, the people were looking for the king of the Jews. As he enters into the, tri- the, the city of Jerusalem for the last time, the central hub for the Israelites, And as Jesus hung on that cross, stated above him, hey, this is the king of the Jews. You cannot make up a better story if you tried. And so Jesus is the king. God specifically chose Jesus to be the king. And God also chose Jesus to be the savior. And Genesis chapter three, sin entered the world. With sin came a world that was broken and cursed by sin. And with sin came the curse and brokenness of tears, sickness, pain, and death. And so mankind, we need saved from sin, and we also need saved from the consequences of sin. And fortunately for us, just like God chose Jesus to be the king before the foundation of the world, God also chose Jesus to be the savior of the world. And we see, that, we see this uh, portrayed, uh, foretold in Matthew chapter 1. We already saw uh, what the angel, uh, if you have your Bibles, we can open up to Matthew chapter 1. We already saw what the angel told Mary about the special baby boy, Jesus, that he would be the son of David, that he would reign over the house uh, of Jacob forever. Um, Well, well here, uh, the the angel tells uh, Joseph uh, a few more details about who this man, Jesus, is going to be. And so Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 20, uh, this is right after Joseph uh, found out that his, the woman who he was about to marry uh, was pregnant, which was a, a huge no-no. In verse 20, it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
And so this angel, uh, some speculate maybe the angel Gabriel, not, not sure exactly, but, but this angel uh, who appeared to Joseph and informed Joseph that, hey, yeah, uh, this woman you're about to marry is uh, pregnant, but don't worry, Joseph. This baby boy that, that is in uh, Mary's womb has been conceived uh, from the Holy Spirit. And, and this son that, that Mary's about to give birth to shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus, when you look at that in the Hebrew, it means God or, or uh, Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. You're going to name him Yahweh saves. Why? Because he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Because God had a plan before the foundation of the world that he was going to save humanity from their own mess that they created. And this plan to save mankind was all going to rest on the shoulders of Jesus, of a man whose name means Yahweh saves. And so Jesus truly did come to save the world. 1 John 4, 14 echoes this sentiment as John states that God sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. So we're going to end with communion in a minute here. We're going to touch uh, more on this concept of Jesus being the savior in just a bit. But, but before we transition into communion, I want to read for you all uh, one more passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, where I think this is the culmination of Jesus fulfilling his role of both king and savior all at once. 1 Corinthians uh, 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, this is known as the resurrection chapter, chapter that we've uh, talked about numerous times throughout the years. Uh, really uh, important details shared throughout this chapter. But we're reading uh, verses 20 through 28 here. This is Paul writing. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for, for someone who had fallen asleep in death. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So here in verses 20 through 23, we see Jesus fulfilling his role as the Savior. As Christ, he has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. He is the first person who has been raised to eternal life. And for by a man came death, that, that man was Adam as sin entered this world through Adam and Eve. By man came death because when sin entered the world, death entered the world as well. And so by one man came death, but also by one man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so through Christ, we are going to be saved from the consequences of sin. We are going to be saved from this punishment of death. This is all made possible through the one man, Christ Jesus. But each in his own order. Christ was the first fruit. Christ, about 2,000 years ago, he was raised to everlasting life. Whenever Christ comes back to this earth, we are all going to be given imperishable seed, imperishable bodies. Paul talks about later uh, throughout this chapter. If we have a living faith in God and his son Jesus, that then we will experience the everlasting life. And then verse 24, then comes the end. 
When he, Christ Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the son himself will also be subjected to him being God the father who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Let's rewind uh, here a bit. Uh, what, what is Paul saying here? Well, Jesus, through one man, Jesus is going to save the world. Uh, through one man, Jesus comes the resurrection of the dead. We're, we're going to be saved from the, the sin and the consequences of sin. And then comes the end when Jesus is going to reign. He's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And Jesus is going to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so there's going to be this period of time in the end where Jesus is going to exact his rule and authority here on earth. And every single enemy of Jesus is going to be put under the rule and the reign and the authority of Christ Jesus. And as Jesus has all of this authority, as he is reigning over the earth, Jesus is going to destroy all of his enemies. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. That crummy, crummy consequence of sin itself is going to be defeated at the hands of Christ Jesus, the King of the world. You know, for uh, two weeks ago, we, we talked about Jesus being the Son of God. We talked about outlining the differences between Jesus and God himself, and how Jesus himself states that the Father is greater than I and so for people who, who understand that, that the Father is greater than Jesus, sometimes we can fall into the trap of not giving the respect, glory, and honor that Jesus so deserves. I remember uh, this being an eye-opening uh, passage for me, where God has not put some things under the authority of Jesus. He's not put most or many things under the authority of Jesus. God has put every single thing under the authority of King Jesus. That is a special, special king. A king who has all authority over every being, over every enemy, over every ally. Jesus is king. Jesus is going to establish God's everlasting house, the everlasting throne, and the everlasting kingdom here on earth as God has handed all that authority to Jesus. And now Paul there at the end, uh, getting a little wordy there, he makes it clear that when God has handed all things under the authority of Jesus, it doesn't include the, the, the being who put that authority in Jesus' hands in the first place. It does not include God himself. When actually... When all things are subjected to, to Christ Jesus, then also 
Jesus is going to be subject to God himself. And so we have got to put respect, glory, and honor on the name of Jesus as he is going to be the one who hands over the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, once and for all. I long for that day. I I can just imagine how it will play out after Jesus has defeated every last enemy. And then Jesus says, here you go, dad. Here's your kingdom. Here's your kingdom. What a glorious, glorious day and age that would be. It's like a movie script. The sun goes out to battle. The sun reigns over the earth. And after he has put everything in order, he hands it over to his father, the being who has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And I cannot wait for that day. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. Amen. So through Jesus' life, Jesus reigns and establishes his rule as king. And the ironic thing about talking about Jesus as both king and savior through his life, Jesus establishes rule as king, but it's through Jesus' death where he establishes his role as the savior of the world. Shortly before Jesus' death, Jesus received a request on behalf of James and John to be seated at his right and left. We, we can read about this uh, in Mark chapter 10. You can just listen if you want, or you can uh, turn there with me. In Mark chapter 10, these uh, disciples are bickering a bit about, hey, can I sit at your right? Can I sit at your left hand? They're concerned at the moment of receiving the fame and the glory. And this is Jesus' response in the midst. This is near the very end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And in response to this, verse 42, Jesus called them, uh, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here we have these disciples in the midst of bickering. Who's going to sit at the right? Who's going to sit at the left of Jesus? Wanting this fame and this glory. In the midst of this is sitting the king of the world. God's chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God himself. And the son of God, the son of man, going to humble himself and obediently submit himself to the excruciating death on the cross. Jesus could have called in a legion of angels to defeat the Jews, to defeat the Romans, uh, the, the Roman Empire, and save his life. Jesus had, God granted Jesus that sort of authority. Jesus could have asked that from the Father. Father would have granted it to him. But Jesus willingly, humbly, and obediently submitted himself to the death on the cross. Whereas Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And so the king 
of the world and all of his power and authority and, and, and rulership here on earth, he gave up his life for you. The king of the world had his body broken for you. And the king of the world had his blood spilled out for you. And because of this, the king of the world is also the savior of the world. Just like Adam and Eve, we all partake, we all partook in sin. Through Adam, all are brought to death because of sin. But through Jesus, all who put their faith in him are made alive. We will be raised to everlasting life after every enemy has been defeated, including death itself. And we won't have to deal with sin anymore. We won't have to deal with the consequences of sin, including pain and tears and sickness and death. Raise your hand if you're tired of pain and tears and sickness and death. I am fed up with pain and tears and sickness and in death. But that's all going to be dealt with. That's all going to be destroyed. Why? Because of this. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So this moment, as we partake of communion together, we have the bread and the cup. And this bread it represents, it signifies the body of Jesus. If, if you didn't get uh, any communion emblems, you can raise your hand and Mark uh, will get you uh, some communion emblems. Thank you, Mark. This bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you and I, the body of the king of the world who humbly submitted himself to the excruciating death on the cross. So let's take this moment and let's pray over the bread. Father God, I thank you for your plan of your Christ, of your son, of the king of the world and of the savior of the world. Father, I thank you that through what this bread represents, we can have forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, your mercy and grace. God, we thank you for the body of your precious son, Jesus, the king of the world, the savior of the world that was broken for each and every one of us. It's in his precious and holy and powerful and authoritative name that we pray. Amen. partake of the bread. This cup represents the blood of the king and the savior of the world that was spilt for you that you can have everlasting life. Let's pray over the cup. Father, we cannot begin to measure your grace and your mercy 
and your love that you have for each and every one of us here this morning, Father. We can't begin to measure the pain that your son experienced on the cross, the pain that you must have experienced watching your son suffer and die at the hands of evil men. So God, I just pray that we do not take this sacrifice lightly. I pray that we see and understand the ramifications of what this cup represents for each and every one of us. So God, we love you. We thank you for this plan that you have for us that rests on the shoulders of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's partake of the cup. God, you are good. We give you all of the glory and the honor and the praise and worship. And Father, we glorify and bring honor to your son as well, the man who makes this all possible. It's in his precious and holy name that we pray. And all of God's church said, amen.